If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's episode, we will sit down with ESPN host Jason Fitz and talk about his pre-sports life as a Grammy-nominated country music artist. Stick around. He's got a lot of fun stories from the road and great insights about which country musicians he would most punch in the face. And we will go deep on NFL veteran Arian Foster's hip-hop debut, which to me has a little bit of everything. Soul, jazz, Romance. Hey, 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 hey. hey Stop. Yo. Gonna, wait. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack. We'll discuss here. in a minute. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In due time, save it for the pod, as we say. <laughs> I'm your co host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line, also in Chicago tonight, but but just a tad, a tad closer to the action than my suburban uh, uh, home studio. It is a uh, nationally respected and feared PR representative Adam Willard how uh my commute tonight was uh was was uh, three hours how was uh how was your trip home mine's a 10 minute walk Brad so sorry about that buddy <laughs> yeah yeah well on the bright side I also have yard work now too <laughs> yeah um, my, also well, and my and my cleaning lady came today so yeah sorry buddy also with us in our Brooklyn Bureau, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, I ask these little kind of weirdly nuanced questions to, to us every, every episode, but tonight is my favorite question of the year for you. You were at the sports Emmys last night, so I got to ask, the world wants to know, did you, did you come through and borrow Tom Brady's tux from the Met Gala? <laughs> I did not. I did not do that. The fashion was decidedly less uh, Catholic, Gothic, impressive. Um, you know, nobody stood out. A guy won for a video game thing, and he was cool. And they talked a long time about video games. Uh, but it was interesting to see gaming win a sports Emmy, as well as uh, Verizon for Dear Basketball won a sports Emmy, and. Uh, Twitch and other outlets like that. So it was sort of a, you could see where the future is going at the sports Emmys this year. You certainly could. And I just want to clarify, that's not Verizon. That's actually the Go90 app. Hashtag CL, hashtag client, hashtag page. (laughs) 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 All right. Right now, we're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything around the sports world is fair game and guys guys i want i want to start with a little bit of a a, i kind of want to direct these comments to to the audience a little bit you know you know folks i I hear from you i get your tweets and uh and i get i get the occasional email and i know you think that when it comes to athlete rap you know i I grade on a curve 
and that uh, and that I'm a little bit too easy on these guys. And I get a lot of <laughs> questions like, "Did you really? Did you really like?" Le'Veon Bell's album that much, and it's uh, we laugh, and I say, yeah, of course I did, um, and no. it's awkward and it's weird. So I just gotta tell you guys off the top, um, I was listening to the, the the new rap album, the new hip hop debut from Arian Foster, a longtime Texans running back, uh, who who has created this uh, persona for himself, Bobby Fino, and I'm listening to it on YouTube just initially at work. I had to stop like several times. Out of pure fear that the the track had skipped to something else on the YouTube playlist, <laughs> simply because I was shocked and and taken aback by the quality of what we were listening to. <laughs> yeah, it's this so is so good. This it's is yeah. uh, like, I this is the the goat of athlete albums. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it, this is the th- not only lyrically but musically. Um, I saw I heard Arian Foster on the Breakfast Club, um, I think a couple weeks ago, talking about the making of this album and talking about all the actual musicians that he brought in to do this album. Yeah, not saying that the production quality of other albums hasn't been high. Uh, sorry, Le'Veon Bell, we don't mean you. Uh, but specifically, Damian Lillard, high production quality on his two records that he's put out so far. But this from start to finish, is really an impressive piece of music artistry. Brad, I think you put it best by saying, like, I, t- I texted my wife. I was like, hey, uh, you know, you hear me listen to a lot of rap albums for the show. Like, if this came on a Spotify playlist, you would never know. Like, you would upvote it, and, like, you would never know as an athlete. It's... <laughs> I, I like. I texted my my buddy Todd just before the podcast. I like, dude, we're recording a podcast tonight, and we do a lot of new athlete rap album. And after the last one, I was basically like, "This is trash. These dudes can't rap. Like, I don't want to hate and tell these guys not to pursue their dreams, but I am out on this lazy ass trap music." So anyway, yes. we're listening to Bobby Fino's album this week. Todd, it's phenomenal. <laughs> like, I want to listen to more of it. He studied Tupac and Tribe and Jay-Z and the last Tribe album especially, and he took his time, which I think is a key to this and the success of it, and used his money in all the right ways in the production, and this album is, all caps, fantastic. Like, legit good. This is true. I just I was listening to the song Amen, and my jaw was just hanging open as I listened to it. <laughs> my brother. Please pass on the bacon, my brother. You gotta turn away from Satan, my brother. Run to the Lord, he's waiting, my brother. They're taking my brothers, raping our mothers. God's gonna save us, have patience, my brother. And all you gotta do is believe him. I know you can't hear or see him, but it's just more pleasing when you got that faith. Hook, line, and sink, brother, drop that bait. Heaven is high for you. Hop that gate, and science is lying to you. It's not that great. So I asked the preacher why these kids starving the land, and the preacher said it's something we ain't meant to understand. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, and may we all go blind. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Uh, it's ambitious. It's smart. It's inventive. I, I'm. I'm so impressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was uh, my initial. Great. We all we all agree this should be fun. Yeah, yeah right. I know. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Let's let's send them some shout outs. Uh, <laughs> shout out Joe Reed. No, I mean, 
I, I had a visceral reaction to the to the album in that when it first started, I was like, yeah, this is really good, you know, it's, trying to take some notes and just have some fun with it. And, and then it just, I just kind of put the pen down and, and started asking myself, like, <laughs> and I know, I, that's why I want to talk to the audience. Like, I know you think I'm kidding. I started asking questions like, I don't know. Is this the first hip hop album I've listened to all the way through in twenty years? <laughs> like, might be. <laughs> like, I, I started like flipping through CDs at one point, just like measuring up. Like, do I like this more than Jane's Addiction? Like, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite band of the nineties. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't even know how to process it. Yeah, right, gotta duck that steel. Too much lip, gotta tuck that real. Nigga, feel free, who don't want that fear? Came when I told him I'ma fuck that bill. <laughs> yeah, out here living comfortable. Came from a place dysfunctional. But I love my fam and I love my home. And I'm glad I ain't going with the Huxtables. What a thing with where we weave here. I live here, I grieve here. I finally found a little peace here. But I don't think that I can leave here yet. Cause I told my people that I got them once I got it and I got it. Uh, I told my people that I got it once I got it, boy, I got it. It restored my faith in athlete musical talent. And I think what's interesting about this is, um, as I think as Gareth pointed out, uh, that he took his time with this. This was made over the course of five years part of it during his career but really polished over the last year while he's been out of football and I think you can hear the maturity in the sound of the album um, and in the the rapper himself so we've talked about Damian Lillard who's 27 um, Le'Veon Bell who's also in his 20s Iman Shumpert's 28 uh, Arian Foster's almost 32 and I think you hear a little more pain and struggle not that you can't have struggle as a young man but uh there's a little more wisdom in what he's trying to say and in the music itself gareth help us, help us understand uh you know he goes by the name bobby fino it, it's his it's his you know hip-hop persona much like donald glover's chowder scambino uh but help us understand the reference to the album title so he named the, i think this is important too i read about it and read and in reading about it he named the album flamingo and coval which is the intersection where Tupac was shot and killed in Las Vegas. And I think that it's important. Tupac is quoted on one song or like he's sampled and um, you can hear a lot to me. You can hear a ton of Tupac uh, like influence and also like in his flow and sort of like his voice has this like, I don't know, like almost grainy quality to it at times that I think really sounds like Tupac in various ways. And Adam, I think that goes really well to your point about his age. Like, I think this is a guy that got, that caught the tail end of an older sort of hip hop before like the young guys now came up. And this is not like saying, I don't want to become an old head here. Shout out Spice Adams, friend of the pod. (laughs) But you know, like rap is a, as a musical, as a musical genre, it just moves so fast. And I've heard, I've read a lot of people that are like, like old dudes complaining about new rap is like the most tired shit on the planet because it's not for you, man. Like these are young people making this music. And so like, you kind of have to accept that what you love might get washed away really quickly. 
so all that said, like I think a lot of the guys you were talking about just now who are making these albums, Dame Lillard, etc., are younger and they're making them fast in like the SoundCloud era. You know what I mean? And so it is music made in that style to fit into that niche. And this is slower, like album based rap that sounds older and older from a time, like older as in he's an older man, but also older of a time. Like it was more 90s, 2000 influences. There was once like song that sounded really like similar to like the Jay-Z Neptune's work of the early 2000s to me. And that would have made sense. Like he would have been hearing that stuff when he was in high school. And that was like the stuff he dug. Interestingly enough, he says he he, he never listened to any Jay-Z until hmm. 2009. Um, so he he admits he was way late to the game on that. But That's like I when agree. Giannis Giannis says he picked up basketball at like age sixteen. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I uh, I think, but I agree with you. I think I hear a lot of neo soul influences. So around the time that you're talking, not only from yep. rap music, but also uh, Common, uh, Jill Scott. Yep. Um, yeah. D'Angelo, like just kind of a, a different sound that was trying to break away from the typical R&B that was happening at the time. Um, so uh, more of a, a focus on the, the vocal quality and instrumentals. And it's not something we've heard throughout uh, the the 2000s and 2010s. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was very interesting and refreshing to hear musically. There's two paths I want to explore tonight one is the, the the music and the sound that he chose and two is the the content of the lyrics because i think they're both they both deserve exploration and again if you think we're just joking around or having fun like we do like, <laughs> we're really blown away by this uh, you know it's on itunes it, it's online you can listen to it on youtube if you want but i, I would advise paying for it like um it, it, it's well worth it gareth i want to ask you i have not i can't remember the last time and again, I, I, I'm not as plugged into hip hop. I'm sure that somebody put out something recently that like would blow my mind. But uh, I can't remember the last time that I heard a, a debut as confident musically in, in as this is from start to finish. I felt there was a purposeful, intentional musical thread, and it, it would it would lead with light jazz that that crescendoed up and then it would take a turn and then dip back and back and it reminded me a lot and i know this is like a crazy comparison but it reminded me a lot of of uh, the first time i heard uh, you know um college dropout and you think this is an album album in an era when you know when artists sat down and they thought from start to finish this is the the concept i'm bringing to the table and the ebbs and flows of the music so gareth from your perspective what did you think about this as album and not just from a musical style perspective and not just as project it's fucking a whole like a 95 (laughs) yard scamper into the end zone like it's like (laughs) like i don't want to overstate it but i listened to i don't know why but i i just like caught something online last week and i saw they did a one hour podcast on the new york times podcast about avici and the day he died, I was driving around, so I heard like all the news about it all day. I was on a shoot, and so I was like, I want to listen to this like a few weeks later and just kind of learn more about this guy. And basically, it was an interesting way of hearing people who are really into this EDM scene uh, break down that this was a guy that came along when 
DJs would just coast on singles and play clubs and like drop the beat on one single for years. And he wanted to bring albums back. And you could hear that. And people gave him flack and he started making country songs and they gave him flack about that. But he was, he was right by following his own path. And I think that like what Bobby Fino did here was he listened to a lot of the old albums and he talked in another interview that like his dad liked old soul records and he listens to a lot of Patsy Cline that his mother gave him and like soul like as a genre some of it's more singles based than others but whatever he went in to make an album and did it i think the thing though that we can't overstate and where he was really really smart was he took his time like this is not a rush job he he sat on this for 5 years and like Le'Veon, you're another running back like Sit on something for five months, like just let it breathe. Well, walk Garrett, away. Garrett, come to be back fair, to it. To be fair, Arian was like a patient, find the hole. Le'Veon's more of a hit the hole, you know. Like when you talk about runners, <laughs> is it? Is it like yeah, whatever? I we, that's talking sports, and we don't do that. So. How dare you, Brad? Well, Adam, Adam, let me ask you because, but lyrically, I was struck, like really struck with how introspective this was and how honest he he got about his place within the black community especially some track on some tracks near the end so from your perspective as an african american like what did you think about how honest he was talking about his own view on american life yeah gareth referenced the track earlier but i thought amen was incredible because arian foster is among other things is a pretty outspoken atheist and um, the criticism of religion on that track to to be anti-religious in the sports world is um, pretty controversial in every NFL locker room uh, doing the the Lord's Prayer following a game is pretty commonplace. Uh, Maybe the only the last American workplace will you ever find that on a regular basis. So for him to speak out uh, and be very critical of religion um, to an audience of presumably athletes, but also African-Americans, I thought was pretty bold, but he did it in a a way that wasn't petty. It really tried to examine the topic. Um, And that track stood out to me. There were a few others. Uh, I also really loved uh, Still Love Her, which is paying homage to Commons. I used to love her. So it's a song about the evolution of hip hop. Um, and in Commons, I used to love her. It was from the the streets of uh, of Brooklyn all the way to the rooftops of Manhattan, and um, and Arian takes it into a, a whole different territory of rap. What rap has become today. Every time that you around, it's like I drown inside the sound. I can see it in my mind. You're divine. It's like you're mine. Never mind. I can never hold you down. Spread the love around. Everyone in town should know about you like you fine. Uh, yeah, she was born in the Bronx on the south side. Where the party got started on the outside. Took a little soul from her mom and her dad. Made a little money and the shit got bad. Sniffing Hollywood cocaine. Don't it taste sweet? Why you letting everyone beat? Fucking everybody you meet. You can't just kiss a nigga on the cheek. You gotta go deep. So let me go deep. 
Yeah, I mean, it's guys, it's so good. <laughs> so let's <laughs> let's put it into context because we ha we've had this debate more than any other show in the country. Of do you judge athletes based on the merits of their work or put them in the context of of where they stand athletically? Now, I think we all agree this is to be deemed a a really strong hip-hop album regardless of him playing sports but adam you referenced it so we got to go there you opened the door i mean just on a pure album quality perspective did this displace uh you know shaq's debut as the greatest rap album from an athlete ever well i didn't know that shaq's debut was the greatest <laughs> athlete rap ever but uh, i suppose you're right considering all sources uh it's yeah. still my show adam <laughs> yeah <laughs> and damn yeah. it it's that's gonna be that's george washington on the mount rushmore man <laughs> yeah i i hate to say it brad but this is the this is the next step or perhaps first step in athlete rap that's a great way to put it the first step <laughs> no 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 one who has listened to no one who has listened to Dana Barros's check it would ever say this was the first step that was uh this as a, as an album so as an album and as a piece of music um where more than the beat was focused on and perhaps the lyrics and there is room for all kinds of hip hop but in terms of the musicianship um other than Wayman Tisdale, this is the most developed musically album we've heard from a a athlete. Well, it it's like one step below my all Cedric Sabalos mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> but again, and that's what the hard part about this show, because we don't want to kind of break format. The the album is really good. So like that's why I had to say, like, we we talk a lot of game about the guys efforts and we, we we award a lot of participation trophies on this show because <laughs> that's what we do but i i literally was asking my again literally asking myself do you think this is better than kendrick's debut like, i know that sounds crazy <laughs> but I was yeah, like, no really? it's not crazy there are a lot of there are a lot of uh similarities between the two and it was just Great to listen to because I was genuinely upset after you made us talk about Lonzo Ball last time, and I know that means we need to come up with some better topics, but uh, I was upset that we had to talk about Lonzo Ball. So being able, having the privilege of talking about Bobby Fino is awesome. We, we live in a world where one of the best rap albums of this year was made by a former NFL player from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So just wrap your head around that. Amazing times. Amazing times. Okay, that's a good transition to our interview, also about music. Jason Fitz is an ESPN personality who has done everything from host his evening show nationally with Sarah Spain, also friend of show, and uh, get an Emmy nomination for his role on SportsCenter on Snapchat. What you may not know is that he was an awesome country music artist. He was a world-class fiddler who logged time in the parlance of this show 
with the band Perry, a, a, a favorite of many country artists. And we broke down Jason's life in Nashville, what it's like to move to Nashville and try to break into the scene, uh, how he climbed the ladder, what it was like going on tour with the band Perry, uh, getting a Grammy nomination. You know, he's he's halfway to that mythical, what is it, Emmy, Grammy, Tony, Oscar, <laughs> like... Um, the EGOT. Yeah, the EGOT. He, he's like halfway there with, with nominations. Oh, but I guess shout out Kobe Bryant, who's like all the way there now, like <laughs> after winning an Emmy. I mean, who even knows? Uh, but uh, you know, Jason was a lot of fun. Lots of great stories. Getting candid about the ups and downs of the industry, and uh, setting the record straight on uh, whether Nelly counts as the greatest country artist of our time. And you know where I stand on that. And after that, stick around. We will be back to distract you. I got a lot of questions about uh, about you know just your 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 experience about touring the world, about all the success you've had in country music. But I want to start with with a hot take because that's what sports <laughs> that's what sports media does. Is it country music if it does not feature a fiddle? Oh, you know, it's not good country music if it doesn't feature a fiddle. We'll say that one. I, no, you know, I, think, I do think it's funny, and, and you know, I'll go heavier than, than even I think you intended with the question, but it, it's funny to me that country is the one genre that's always worried about sticking to what defines it. And, and realistically, mm. like country is a lifestyle. It's a... It's a feeling. It's and it doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. There's a relatability to the to the music, and there's sort of a a buy-in that the fans have. But it's an interesting piece, and I'll never forget. Years ago, I toured, and the band I was in at the time was opening for Kenny Rogers, and he was talking about how when he first started breaking into country music, people were hitting him with the "This isn't country. This is pop, and this is rock." And and that was back in know the early 80s and now he's in the country music hall of fame every generation right. of country music is constantly stuck trying to define exactly what it is and that's funny to me because how often do you really hear somebody say well that's not hip-hop that's not rap no evolution <laughs> is part of all of it so uh, i'm a big believer that there's room for you know florida georgia line to be its type of country and there's room for casey musgraves to be her type of country and and all of it in between uh, jason i have a question for you um how did you come into country? I know you're a classically trained violinist, but did country come first or did the violin? Oh, well, the violin definitely came first. And in fact, when I moved to Nashville, uh, I wasn't even, uh, it wasn't to play fiddle for anybody. Uh, I sang with some guys I went to high school with. And, you know, in the mid nineties, we got, uh, we were doing a, a show in Washington, DC. I went to high school not too far from there. And uh, there was a guy there that's now, uh, he's a rap rapper now known as Tank. Uh, but at the time he was Darrell and he walked up to us and we'd done this like little performance and we did like this acapella thing. And he was like, man, I think you guys could be the next like big thing. I think you could be like a white boys to men. And this is before the boy bands had come back out and all that stuff. And, and so we got signed to RCA New York and we thought, uh, or through, you know, through a production company that was working with RCA. And we thought that we were going to be the next thing since sliced bread. And, and they were working on another band and that other band that they put out tanked. And, and when it went terrible, uh, every all of us lost our deals and, and everybody was sort of free at that point. And so we were sitting there in 96 and it was like, man, 
I thought we were going to be sort of pop R&B stars and that wasn't happening, but we were all listening to Garth and, and Tim McGraw and Colin Ray and that sort of mid nineties version of country music. And we all loved it. So we moved to Nashville, not knowing anybody, just knowing that that was the type of music we really felt like we wanted to make anyway. So we, uh, we moved and, you know, I, I, that, that quartet uh, ended up getting signed a bunch of times, but never really making it. And I was playing in the symphony or playing in the studio orchestra. And it wasn't until we were going to hire a fiddle player for a show. And I was like, wait, 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 we're going to pay somebody to play fiddle. That's ridiculous. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I went in and I, I started taking like old seventies rock records and saying, okay, how can I dissect what these electric guitar players did to figure out what my style would be for improv. And that's really the only difference between a violin and a fiddle is improv versus written. And so I wanted to come at it from a different approach. And that's, you know, that's what really started my fiddle career. And then as, as we started touring and I was playing fiddle with the band, that's when other acts started to take note. And I started getting offers to play for people. For the country sound overall, did you take any inspiration from some of the older guys like a, a Merle Haggard or Waylon Jennings? Did I didn't. You get, did you? And, you know, okay. that's not a that's not a popular thing to to really admit for a lot of people. Um, I didn't grow up with a lot of that music around. Now, I mentioned Kenny Rogers. That that stuff was uh, big for me. Uh, Restless Heart, that stuff was big for me. Stuff that had a lot of harmonies on it. Uh, like I said, in that in that mid-90s stuff, like Diamond Rio, I was listening to all of that. So I was a new country kid in the 90s that never, at the time, never really pieced that portion of it for me. Like, um, that, that portion of it for me came much later. I toured for a little bit with a guy named Easton Corman, and Easton's super traditional country. And uh, that was sort of even eye-opening for me listening to how much George Strady listened to, because frankly, I didn't listen to a lot of that stuff. So... Uh, you know, that evolution probably came a little later for me. You know, we always hear about the rite of passage of moving to Nashville, and, and, and clearly that's been popularized by all sorts of pop culture. I mean, the, the show is my wife's favorite, so I'm, I'm all too familiar with all the, uh, the way Hollywood portrays that. But I'm, I'm fascinated by what's the real process like? I've got some friends from high school who went down to Nashville, and I'm curious what your perspective was when you first moved there and how you soak in the very distinct uh, musical scene that that exists only there and nowhere else in the world. So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I moved to Nashville, like I said, 96. Uh, there wasn't even a Starbucks in Nashville at the time. Lower Broadway that's <laughs> now like like all the places now that are super famous for everybody to go get drunk. And it was homeless people at heroin needles. It was not a, a particularly safe or great town in that sense. It's become much different now, but when it, when it comes to actually moving to Nashville, uh, I've told people for years, if you want to make it in country music, step number one, move to Nashville. If you want to make it pop or <laughs> jazz, or like you can, you can, you can move to New York or LA. If you want to play other styles, if you want to make it in, in Nashville, or you want to make it in country, you move to Nashville. And then the other piece of it is you just got to put yourself out there and start meeting people because this I, this is going to sound crazy. I've never been offered a gig from a standard audition where like somebody went in and said, okay, come play for me and see how it goes. It's always word of mouth. And uh, a good, good buddy of mine who plays on more records as a guitar player than anybody else in Nashville said years ago, once one of us rises, we'll all rise. And that was really true. Like you spend years 
getting drinks with guys and getting coffee with guys and getting people to know you. But the best analogy I can make is if somebody walks up and hands you a CD and you've never heard of them before and they say, hey, check out my music, you automatically think it's going to stink, right? Like you just, Mm -hmm. that's where we go. If your buddy comes up to you and says, check out my music, now they get benefit of the doubt. And that's that's the, the key to Nashville is to live there long enough to create sort of relationships and then everybody buys into you as a person and the fact is smartest thing anybody i toured with said a long time ago is you're never hired or fired for what you do the 90 minutes on stage it's honestly the rest of the day are you a good hang on a tour bus does everybody dig you can you handle being on the road with somebody for 300 days a year so that's all as big a piece to to making it in nashville as how you play is and you know and for me that was a huge part of it was just being around and and I always tell this story, but years ago there's a place called the Red Door in Nashville. And uh we a bunch of us would go and, and we'd buy drinks and at the end of the night we'd do the whole thing where everybody puts their card in a hat and whoever pulls it out has to pay for the drinks. And you know, this is years ago. And I remember how often certain guys would just sneak out right before then. Uh, you know, because nobody had the money. We were all broke and we were just <laughs> trying to network. And, you know, you'd be you'd be sitting there like mid panic attack thinking, oh, my God, I can't pay for this round. So whatever happens, happens. And a few years later, we were all sitting at what they call it, the circle bar. It's in the MGM Grand on the first floor where the ACMs are every year. And that same group of guys, we were all hanging out and we laughed about how, like, you know, whatever making it means, at least for once, we could all put our card in the hat and know, hey, we can buy a round of drinks in Vegas. That was that's when we all knew we'd sort of made it. And that's. You know, everybody from Jason Aldean's band and Keith Urban's band and, uh, you know, I was with the band Perry and uh, Hunter Hayes band. Like we all sort of cut our teeth together at the same time. So it's it's a it's that's the way it happens in Nashville. Do you think this strategy would work for a podcast? (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, I'll say this. It worked for me. I, I, you know, I don't I don't know. Um, I think that people ask all the time how I went from music to sports. And the approach wasn't that much different. You know, when I started a podcast, my goal was to get uh, musicians to talk about football and football guys to talk about music. That was my goal on the pod. And um, I never asked anybody to come on the podcast. I just would wait until we were, you know, if I got to connect when I first met Adam Schefter through a mutual friend, I just I became texting buddies with him. And I made sure that I text him every once in a while and asked how the family was and tried to form a real connection with him. And then one day he saw me tweet an episode of my podcast and he texted me and said, Hey, if you ever want me to come on, I'm happy to do it. And that's like, it took, uh, it, it took patience in that sense. Uh, but it, as a result, you know, I have a real relationship with Adam today. And, you know, frankly, one of my biggest episodes ever was when I had Adam on talking about, uh, I think he talked about, uh, Billy Joel maybe, and uh, like just karaoke and fallout boy was in the same episode talking about the bears and the Packers. So, you know, that, mm-hmm. that was my, my method was create a real relationship be patient, and then just see where it goes. I, I think it's interesting that we started the interview mentioning Florida, Georgia line, maybe the three most polarizing words in, in country music. <laughs> um, I know they have an amazing following, uh, but they also have some detractors. Do you think their popularity and bands like them have given way and, and provided – um, a bigger audience for people like Chris Stapleton and Sturgill Simpson, who may not be pop country, um, but are more rock focused and people are looking for a, a, a different alternative to what they're hearing on the radio. That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, FGL, 
you know, here's the thing I would say about country. No matter what you're doing in country music, it's about authenticity. And I know that sounds cheesy, but Chris Stapleton is exactly who Chris Stapleton appears to be. And Sturgill is exactly who Sturgill appears to be, right? Same, I would say the same with Casey Musgraves, Mary Morris. We talked about how, like, a, a generation rises together. Those guys, like, with Brothers Osborne, like, those acts were have all been rising together for the last seven, eight years. We just started to really take notice now. But at the same time, what I will say about FGO is, well, it's not for me. It's authentic to who they are. Like, that, that sort of that sort of glossy bro country thing is who they are as guys, you know? And so they're making music that's authentically them. I will say that in a lot of ways, they're the Nickelback of country. Everybody says they hate them <laughs> yet somehow like they keep filling arenas. Like, I don't like, I don't know anybody that likes Nickelback, but you can't get a sick ticket to a Nickelback concert. Same <laughs> with FGL. So uh, it works. I think Stapleton is a great example of, you know, right place, right time. The Justin Timberlake duet on the CMA Awards was really life-changing for him. And then it became life-changing for a whole group of fans that were waiting for that type of country music to be acknowledged. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're feeling now, which is great. Like, country's at its best when it's allowed to be versatile to me. Yeah, I mean, that's why I always say the, the greatest of all country musicians was Nelly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just... Come on, tell me that doesn't feel like the guys that, that and girls that run record labels in Nashville just have a sense for what was popular with the kids. I say <laughs> yep. with their quotes yeah. like 15 years ago. They're like, "Oh, we'll make it really cool. We'll put Nelly on it." And it's like, <laughs> man, I you know I don't I don't know what we're thinking sometimes with that. But you know somehow he's made it work. Good on him. Well, Ooh. so speed of making it work. So you you go to Nashville, you link up with the, with the band Perry. How did that happen? And 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 what what was it like? Um, so transitioning to to being on the big stage and playing playing the big rooms and, and just being a part of a, of a successful band like that. So for me, uh, I toured first with a guy named Phil Vassar that had had uh, oh, yeah. years of writing hits and uh, Phil, one of the best guys I've ever toured with. Uh, but he just wasn't working a lot at, at that point. And you know, I played on a couple records with him, and it just wasn't working for him. And and then I got a call to go out with, like I said, Easton Corbin. And I was only out with Easton for, you know, less than a year. Um, but we did a show. We did a run of shows with Blake Shelton at the time. And Steel Magnolia was the opener on it. And Steel Mag had, uh, they had canceled a, a show for health reasons, I think. And so the band Perry filled in. And uh, the drummer for the band, uh, Boone, is somebody that I, I didn't realize he was playing for uh, the Perry's at the time, I just, uh, I've known Boone for as long as I've been in Nashville, basically. So we reconnected backstage and I went out to watch it thinking, man, this is going to be terrible. Cause the only thing I'd ever heard was hip to my heart, which was really Taylor Swifty and, um, and not good Taylor Swifty. And so I, I really expected it to be awful. And I went out and watched the show. And frankly, Kimberly was just, she was dynamic. She was amazing. And uh, I went up to uh, the drummer after the set and I said, man, this this thing's going to be huge you can feel it and you know they had a fiddle player at the time but i was like if you guys ever if there are ever band changes which happens all the time as bands grow uh, i was like if there's ever band changes keep me in mind and a couple of months later uh, they decided to make a change and it was crazy i got a call and they said look we need a, a fiddle player tomorrow and we can't guarantee that you get the gig uh, we can't guarantee we'll keep you but we just know that we're going to have to take a fiddle player this weekend and they're going to get first shot. So I had to quit the Easton gig, and he just had a number one. And I quit mm. the gig with no idea if they were going to keep me or not. But I, I called my wife, and I said, look, I think 
I think this thing's going to be huge. So I think we got to take it. But the funny thing about Nashville, a lot of people don't realize is it's not like you get sheet music. I got a, I got an email with the list of 17 songs to learn by the next day. And you just download the MP3s and you start writing your own little sort of like numbers charts is what they're called. And you start writing out what you need note wise and you have 24 hours to learn 17 songs. And so, um, you know, we crammed, we crammed the information and, I, I played that first show and I, I really thought it went okay, but I didn't I didn't know where it was going to go. And, and within a couple of months, uh, they had promoted me and made me the the musical director and the band leader. And um, you know, my I, all of a sudden I went from just playing fiddle to playing fiddle and piano and dobro and whatever else they would put in front of me. And and the roles grew. The the craziest thing though about that was as much as you think you know what you know air quotes making it is, it it's so different when you're in it because you're constantly evolving like when we went from playing outdoor you know festivals and then all of a sudden we started playing you know indoor small theaters well you have to have a different set for that and then you go from small theaters to like you know small arenas and we went out and i I remember we did an arena tour where we were opening for reba and we just we've never played twelve thousand seat you know rooms before and so the way you arrange your music has to be different it has to sound thicker and fuller mm-hmm. and has to be bigger and like your tempos have to change because now you're trying to put on a show to a bigger room and play to the back of a bigger room and so those those evolutions never stopped and and i'll never forget uh the moment that that really sunk in for me was when we it was we were on the brad paisley tour Scotty McCreary was opening for us. He just won American Idol. So Scotty and then the band and then Brad, and we just had the number one song in all genres with If I Die Young. And I uh, I remember standing up on stage and I went out like an hour and a half before the show started and every butt was in every seat in this arena that sat 18,000 people in Michigan. And I just looked around and I was like, man, this is, this is what you fought for. Like you give your whole life to try and get that moment. It's a very surreal feeling to look around and say, Hey, for, for what it, for, for whatever it means, this is, this is what the fight was for. Uh, you mentioned that you playing in arenas is a, a rush on stage, but how about just on the road in general? I saw you guys play several years ago at country fest in Kadat, Wisconsin. Um, um, a country fest is a blast, man. I love uh-huh. that one. It's always good. It's always great. Do you have any great stories from the road or favorite small towns that you've played in? You know what? I'll be honest, and this sounds terrible, but a lot of times they all sort of blend together. I I think our busiest year, we were gone 300 days in one year. So um, it it blends together. I'll never forget, um, arena-wise, I'll never forget playing Madison Square Garden because that was one that I went to as a kid. And and so, like, you know, I used to go up after the puck would drop or after tip-off when I was a little kid. I'd have whatever change I could save for my lunch for the week, and I'd say, okay, I got, you know, six bucks. And scalpers would sell me tickets so I could, I, you know, I sat on the floor of Madison Square Garden and uh, playing the show. And I looked up and I'm like, I remember sitting there and there. So um, that one was cool. Same with Meriwether Post because I went to high school uh, sort of in the D.C. Uh, area. And so, like, remembering that I saw Hootie and the Blowfish there and then I was on tour with Darius Rucker, you know, playing with us. Um, so th- those moments are surreal. All of the Wisconsin festivals are incredible and you know i can't say that enough like ohio wisconsin man those those festival those audiences are so appreciative of what you're playing whether it's noon or whether it's two in the morning that's really special and then there's a small small venue in new hampshire that the back uh backstage area 
is built like a like an 80s camp uh so like they have like Ooh. boats and stuff like and so i i, I remember that one a lot uh, but at some point they a, a lot of them you know they just sort of all blend together you just uh, it becomes rinse wash you know repeat sort of thing um it, it's it's unfortunate that you don't have more time in the moment to appreciate pieces of it i should also say to the houston rodeo um, the first time we did the Houston Rodeo, at the time we set a new attendance record, there were 76,000 people, I think. Wow. Um, and it was really cool to walk out, and I played the fiddle solo of Fida Young, and I actually took my ears, my in-ears that sort of plug your ears and let you hear sound. I took those out because I just wanted to know what 75,000-plus people actually sound like at a concert, and it's a moment I think I'll never forget. It's awesome. Um You've toured with Easton Corbin and a band, Perry. Easton seems like a lot of fun. Um, what's the better touring experience overall? Uh, we did more with, with the band, Perry. Uh, I mean, I think we, we accomplished more goals. And, and the band, Perry's like, you know, uh, we always, the, the running joke sometimes was the Milk and Cookies tour uh, because yeah. we, were, <laughs> we were all work, you know, but, but it really, it was so um, connected. I got like I, I really knew that I had a, a place and a part with that with that project, you know, from arrangements to how things went live. Like I really felt like like that that meant something. So the Van Perry was such a connected group of people. It really was like like family touring. Easton uh, Easton was different because I hadn't spent a lot of time going through Texas and he did really well in Texas. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm playing the Billy Bob's sorts of places and uh, you know, that's its own beast, uh, you know, in and of itself. Um, but I think it's funny because I'll always remember Phil Vassar for the fairs and festivals. He's he's always been big in that Ohio, Wisconsin area. does really well. I remember a lot of my firsts there, like Summerfest in, in Milwaukee. And Easton's all about Texas. But the band Perry was really, you know, sort of where I got to accomplish a lot of my life dreams and my life goals, for sure. Do you have, cool. do you have any crazy road stories, even if they're not you, uh, even if you were doing milk and cookies, did you see someone just going bonkers? And if you need to withhold names, you are more than welcome to. You know, it's a funny thing that um, people don't realize, but most of the time it is actually pretty, pretty tame on the road. Like I'll say even like Blake Shelton, he, you know, he has this, this persona of always being trashed and, does he have a drink? Yeah, but it's not it's not crazy. One of the funny stories I've, I've told before is um, Brad Paisley on the last uh, in, in the last song of the whole show. Uh, and I did a couple of different tours with Brad where we were on. And the last song of the whole thing is called Alcohol. And, you know, and he brings out a bar and a mascot version of himself. And he uh, he comes out and all the bands have to come up. Everybody goes to the bar and it's a requirement. So you have to go to the bar and like they pour little shots for everybody. But the funny thing was when that the tour I mentioned earlier, Scotty McCreary was not 21. And, oh. you know, and the Perry's were always very aware of how many kids watched our shows. And they didn't want us acting like fools. And Brad does not let his band guys uh, drink for the show's over. So those shots that we took during alcohol were actually vitamin water. So okay. <laughs> wow. you're standing up on stage, you know, and I'm the uh, whole time. I'm just thinking, can I go back to the bus and watch family guy? And, uh, you know, and you're <laughs> having shots of, of vitamin water, like more often than not, the people on tour that go crazy are your friends or your guests or somebody that's just out for the weekend. that's hanging out. I will say, uh, and this is years and years and years ago uh, when I was with Phil Vassar, we played a place called Joe's uh, in Chicago, uh, Joe's on sure. Wheat Street. 
And, you know, that's one of those, again, rite of passage, like everybody plays Joe's. It's one of the most amazing, amazing uh, clubs you can ever play. And we were playing two straight nights. And the first night, the band leader uh, for Vassar's band called us and he said, look, when we, if, if you're not drunk, when I get the sound check, everybody's fired. He was joking, of course, but we took him seriously. And so we just, we were so stinking tanked. We could barely stand up for that first show at Joe's and we played terrible. And Phil was really, really, really mad at us afterwards, which rarely happened. And he was like, you guys were an embarrassment. You know, you got to pull your stuff together, act like professionals. So the next day we're a combo of hungover and a little scared, you know? So we uh we were all very very behaved on the next show and the guy that runs joe's ed uh came up to me after the show and he's like man you guys were way better last night so it's funny like <laughs> wow <laughs> we were better tanked uh but the funny thing about that band when you when i look back uh in sort of the history of, of any band i've ever been a part of the guys that played for phil uh, the bass player is now the band leader for Brothers Osborne. The keyboard player's been out with Luke Bryan for years. The other keyboard player is Hunter Hayes' band leader. The drummer went on. He's now Keith Urban's drummer. I went on to the band Perry. So, like, there were a lot of really successful guys in that particular band. Uh, so, you know, maybe we got lucky that we we, uh, we knew each other well and we were all really good, but somehow we managed to play through the alcohol. Hey, I have to ask you this question. I read that you were asked by a fan um of all the people in country music who would you most like to punch in the face and you said alan jackson is that still true oh yeah 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 no doubt and <laughs> you know and that uh, that drove uh, i know that there was some bad blood alan's people did not appreciate me sharing that story but uh you know i i uh, that's from years ago before i toured with anybody um i was in the orchestra it was playing a TV taping for Alan Jackson. It was a Christmas TV taping, and he uh, he wanted his monitors to be right. And those, you know, that's what sits on stage at the time. That he didn't have in ears. I'm sure he does now, but he had them on stage. And he would come out to the edge of the stage, and the first song I think was "Have Yourself a Little a Merry Little Christmas" for this t- Christmas taping. And he would only sing the word "have," and he didn't like the way his monitors sounded. So he would sing the word "have." And then he would just storm off stage. And it's one thing that happens once or twice, but this went on for over an hour. By the time it was wow. all said and done, there were like 25 people standing around the monitors trying to figure out what he didn't like in the one word he was willing to sing. And then he would start berating people as he walked off stage. And I've never, like, I know Alan's been good to some people, but, uh, you know, particularly I know that my, my, my personal story isn't the only one. He's not always the most lovable guy to a lot of people. And that one always rubbed me wrong because, frankly, you know, those crew guys were working their butts off and we were freezing in this theater that they eventually had to to stop the taping because it got so cold. It was actually harmful for our instruments. So uh, that's like how because he wanted to wear his big Christmas coat in the middle of summer for this taping. (laughs) So it was a. It was sort of the worst possible day uh, ever for him, I'm sure. But, yeah, I, I wish at the time I could have just gotten up and slapped him. Uh, well, we we got to let you go so you can get on the air. I, I will say on the way out here, you look, you, you've you been you're, – you're Grammy-nominated as an artist, now Emmy-nominated for SportsCenter on Snapchat. Uh, do, do, I, I guess I, sh- I should ask, do you feel like you've left the country world, or do you still feel like you're, you're going to always feel a part of it? I think that there's so many similarities um, – you know, and, and I tell people this all the time, what I love about radio, particularly, and for me getting to, you know, my daily radio show, Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio is from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern. 
and and what I love about radio is there's a real there's a real true connection, and that's what radio is. That's what country music is. That's where country differs from pop, uh, because the you know or, or or any other medium where guys just get really invested in their fans, and their fans get invested in them, and that's what radio's been. And it's sort of the same thing. Like I, I went on stage every night, you know, around somewhere between 7:30 and 10 p.m. depending on what tour we were on. Well, now I, I essentially think of it like I'm on stage from six to nine every night, you know, and it's my it's my opportunity to make some sort of a impact. It sounds so cheesy, but I'll never forget my first concert was Bon Jovi Skid Row. And I was a little kid and I watched uh, I watched Bon Jovi blow up from what they call toasters. I didn't know that at the time. And they it's the little thing that pops you up on stage. And Richie Sambora landed on stage and there was smoke everywhere. And I looked at it and thought, man that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want to do that. And there were a lot of nights where you've been playing the same show and the same set night after night after night. And what I always thought is, man, like there might be some 11 year old kid there somewhere in the crowd. That's like, that's really cool. Like when I, when I went to the front of the stage and jumped up and down every night while I played the toughest fiddle solo we had on done, I looked at it and thought, man, if, if a little, if a little kid's watching this, then I made impact. That's all I ever cared about. And sports talk is the same way. Like you think about the voices of generations, that impacted all of us and and you know if you're a sports fan and you think about the years you've listened to sports talk radio you get a real connect and to have the opportunity to do that it doesn't feel like i ever left anything because for me it was all about creativity and connection and i still get to do that i just get to do it in a different medium are you getting uh sarah spain into the country no no i don't <laughs> think that's gonna happen you know Unless Justin Timberlake puts out a country record, you know, I don't I I just don't think I'm trying, you know, little bits and pieces. And and I have said, you know, as some of these country acts that I know, excuse me, come up into Connecticut, I'm going to sit in with them. So I'm going to force Sarah to start coming out and seeing, you know, Rascal Flats or Darius or any of those. Like, we'll force it. And eventually maybe she'll be like, you know what? It's not all that bad. You know? And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all get interested in things that they love. And then we tell them, you're being a distraction. Get back to watching film. That's ridiculous. Life is work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we celebrate distractions every week by telling you what's been distracting us in our life. And gentlemen, I'm going to go first. Let's talk about the worst plague on earth. The thing that is destroying our entire environment that is ruining lives, that is tearing down the basic fabric of our society and communities. And of course, are you talking sp- about the plague? Of course, I speak about dandelions. <laughs> I am okay. a home. I'm a homeowner on a cul-de-sac. Okay, and I have dandelions. We don't put out hardcore fertilizer into our yard. We have a. I, I'm not a Jenny McCarthy anti-vaxxer, okay? But I don't put poison on my lawn when I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old because they will eat said poison, okay? They pick dandelions and they want to wear them in their hair and do crazy stuff. So I have, for the first couple years living in the burbs, avoided poisoning the yard. But they are everywhere. (laughs) They have colonized my yard. And here's the worst thing. 
Usually you leave them and you're like, hey, it happens to everyone, right? Well, let me tell you something, non-homeowners. I live in a cul-de-sac, which means you can't escape these seeds. They just blow back into your yard and into your neighbor's yards, okay? They don't blow it on the street and wind up in the town next to yours. They're just there. They just take step down and they walk across the street. And everyone knows where they come from because all my neighbors have perfectly mowed and fertilized yards. And I see the looks. I see what happens. And they come up and they go, hey, dandelion season, huh? And I'm like, yeah, man. Wow. (laughs) I know. (laughs) They're bad everywhere, right? And then we have to look around the cul-de-sac and it's like, no, they are not, sir. They are bad on your lawn, Mr. Burke. (laughs) So this year I finally caved and I got some stuff and I went to spray the yard. And I'll tell you this. I sprayed it all over my legs and yeah. <laughs> got it on my hands and got it in my eyes. And I am still watery-eyed three days later. And I pulled in tonight after my three-hour commute, knowing full well I had to sit down and tape this podcast, which you, listener, are not listening to. What a sacrifice. <laughs> and guess what was back? <laughs> guess what was back in my yard? The dandelions. So here's the Dan- deal, man. Dandelions. Dandelions? Anytime you want to come to the table, hey, if North Korea and South Korea can do it, what do you want, man? What do you you want to just be worn on the red carpets? You want to be uh, Katy Perry's next dress at the Met? I'll I'll negotiate because <laughs> I'm ready to call a truce. If you just lay down your seeds, be pretty for a couple days, and then wither and die and come back as those flowers again, Brad yeah, so you just, out. You're asking them to kill themselves, and what what is the price for that? Stuff one, Brad. They they can have, uh, they can have Cedric Sabalos. <laughs> Cedric Sabalos was has been offered up in many trades over the years. <laughs> All right, that's my that's my spiel. You guys aren't homeowners; you don't have to deal with it. But man, they're the worst. All right, uh, uh, Gareth in New York. What's distracting you, guys? You know what I'm really digging recently? Not being a homeowner. I, like it basically makes me a millennial. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. I am. I, I. I know that the number one way to build wealth in America is to own a home, and I'm probably my ship is sailing. The number on that. one way. Yeah. There's a New York <laughs> Times piece on that a few years ago. Hey. Uh, huh. uh, hey. Spoiler. Hey. That's that's fake news, bro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've lost yeah. significant money on two homes, <laughs> and I'm yeah, and I'm I bought gonna, a third that was more expensive. I'm going to need to see um, the footnotes on this one, but okay. But uh, yeah, I live in a smaller space that I've come to really enjoy where you just have to edit your life down. We'll have to deal with it at some point when the kids get a little older. But for now, I don't do yard work. My Saturdays are mine. If something breaks, I just call Meg the landlord. She sends Ifty over to fix it. So... What I'm enjoying right now this spring is not owning a home. Hey, thanks for that, man. Uh, Adam, do you want to just put your foot on my neck? Adam, do you want to like take away my Arian Foster downloads and like <laughs> you know, never let me listen to them again? 
No, I have a, a fun one. I would first of all like to say goodbye to our younger demo. Thank you uh, for sticking through that. And uh, bro, I'm a, I'm a millennial. Now. I don't own a home. <laughs> like that's the that's yeah. it. So. Yeah, I realize that I have lived in my current apartment for almost eight years, which is the longest I've ever lived in one residence. Uh, so I've been in Chicago almost eight years and never found the need to move. Um, that may be happening soon this summer. Uh, but I am, I've lived in the same apartment and like you said, Gareth, it's really easy, easy maintenance, but that is not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about started a couple weeks ago. Um, Brad was there as, along with a, a couple of our friends. We went to the movie theater to watch a screening of the original Karate Kid followed by episodes one and two of the new YouTube Red series, Cobra Kai which picks up 30 years after where the original Karate Kid left off. I finished the series this weekend, and it was awesome. It gave you all the nostalgia that you wanted, so there were cutbacks to the original movie throughout these 10 episodes, um, but a little bit of reversal of roles uh, in terms of Cobra Kai becoming a pseudo-good guy uh, at times uh, during... The series, so I, that's a, as much spoiler as I'll give, but I would recommend it. The first two episodes are free on YouTube. I think I believe the first episodes receive five or six million views so far. Um, and if you pay the monthly subscription, as I did, which is twelve ninety nine, I paid for it and canceled it instantly, uh, and then watched all ten episodes. It is well worth the the thirteen dollar investment. So check out Cobra Kai on YouTube. Yeah, that was a pretty awkward theater experience, uh, but I had a good time. <laughs> Why? Because I was hurt, rushing us to get there, and there were four people there. It was a lot of. It was not a lot of people, and it was a lot of folks our age at the theater. That I've never been in a theater where someone just whipped it out and started jerking off, but I was pretty sure it was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you mean me? Hey, you know what? Um, uh, I've seen Stranger Things from you, Adam. <laughs> All right. You mean the show? <laughs> yeah, right. That your continued investment in this <laughs> this property. Uh, I, that is our show for this week. Want to give some shout outs? I want to give a shout out to Aaron Foster for just simply blowing our mind. I wish I wish we had like a full week to discuss it. Like we should do a live Periscope like on a, on a billboard until all the aspects have been digested. Uh, but it was it was fantastic, and uh, just encourage everyone to go download it. Bobby Fino. Uh, and uh, it's on iTunes. You can find it on other, whatever you download music. But I, Spotify. Again, I listen on Spotify. Uh, well, unlike you, I, I pay for I pay for my music, Gareth. All right. Whatever. No, you, Spotify. Moving you're back. paying. If you are you a premium member? No. I, you know what? Here, let me say this. <laughs> I have no problem paying for my music. The reason I don't subscribe to Spotify it was like they asked me to subscribe one day, and I was just like, I'm I'm tapped out. I I can't subscribe. Like. I've got Dropbox and Vimeo and WeTransfer and it, it just like I had been updating all that stuff in a day and the Spotify asked and I was like, I'm I'm out. I, I too many passwords and nobody can coordinate that. I'm out. Goodbye. So well, it's all that vinyl you got to buy. Yeah, that, that's where I spend five dollar subscription. Yeah. Now, if you want to simplify, Garrett, just make all your passwords to all your bank accounts and stuff uh, just not sports. <laughs> all lowercase <laughs> no numbers alright let's also give a shout out 
to Jason Fitz, the person, the, the musician who actually joined us tonight, who I shout out second. Um, great stories, great energy. Go check him out, Spain and Fitz on uh, on ESPN Radio. You can find him on Sports Center and Snapchat, and and he he did a great job with Mina Kimes and some others on the uh, on the NFL Draft uh, show on Twitter. So really like how he's kind of branching out all over social media. That's great. Uh, uh, guys, any other shout outs, Gareth? Uh, another, uh, congratulations to all the winners at the Emmys last night. A few friends of show. Alexi Lawless was a presenter. Uh, friend of show Aaron Cohen won. Friend of show Anthony Cortese won. Um, future friend of show A-Rod was there. So there you go. Wonderful. Uh, Adam, end us with some shout-outs. Uh, first, I'd like to shout-out two of our favorites, Shaquille O'Neal and... Uh, Spice Adams. Spice Adams played in a Cheez-It celebrity game, and he and Shaquille O'Neal were featured on the cover of a Cheez-Its box together. So uh, congratulations, Spice. You've made it. As usual, I'd like to shout out my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of second best rapper of all time, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Flamingo and Koval. Stay booty.